Welcome to the Insider's Guide to Finance, where we dive into stories from the front lines of financing public and private companies. I host seasoned CEOs, fund managers, bankers, brokers, and business experts who will answer your questions about how to properly engage investors, finance opportunities, and build outstanding success stories. We dig into the educational how-tos and mechanics of structuring good deals. You'll also hear about strokes of luck, tense negotiations, and the pressures of closing, while also getting insights on how to best navigate the public markets. Welcome back to the Insider's Guide to Finance. In this interview, we hear from Marin Katusa, founder and chairman of Katusa Research. He's a professional and unapologetic resource investor. This interview starts out with an unusual story that's led to Marin's career and how he and his team have become one of the largest early stage financiers in the resource industry. The thing with Marin is that he doesn't mince words and he recognizes that he's likely one of the most disliked guys in the space. He's got no problem saying how he feels about the industry and the players in it. So why listen to this episode? Because Marin cuts to the chase and shares what he looks for in companies. He talks about what he likes in management teams and how he believes companies need to conduct themselves. We talk about his dedication to writing and how consistently publishing keeps him disciplined. We also talk about how he's been caught up in the market and the lessons he's taken from having a quadruple bypass at an early age. One of the key messages is that he sees true company builders as the kind who lead with conviction and a commitment to their chosen sector. They're focused exclusively on their expertise and they default to the truth because problems happen and the numbers don't lie. In other words, they're not deal whores promoting the next hyped sector. He also talks about the fallacy of management teams chasing institutional investors, spending frivolously during bull markets, and disrespecting the retail investor. Marin's unapologetic, and he's not looking to win any popularity contests. But his track record speaks for itself, and he's here to share his experience and expectations in the deals he does. Enjoy the show. On the line, I have Marin Katusa, who's the founder and chairman of Katusa Research. Marin, thank you so much for making the time. Uh, my pleasure. Uh, this is an interview I've been looking forward to, and I think the approach you've taken to investing is something perhaps even completely different, especially with your background. What I was hoping to do is kick off the interview with an introduction from you about yourself and your career. Well, I've heard you were a school teacher and then seen pictures of you in bulletproof vests, so it's, yep. uh, it's been colorful. Yeah, so I had the the great benefit of being born into a great family. Uh, we never had money, but incredible parents uh, that were hardworking and uh, loving. So they they were always supportive. So I learned firsthand hard work from a young age. The other benefit was being born in Vancouver. So I grew up in East Vancouver. Now, it's not the uh, plush area that I live in now, but it was where they the the rough kids grew up, you know, the immigrants and, and, and you learn street savviness on that side of the street. Uh, I had two older brothers. So I, you know, excelled in academics, went to university in Vancouver on an academic scholarship. I actually never intended on going into post-secondary, but they offered me a bunch of money. 
I went and uh, at the time I had no idea what I wanted to do with my life. I realized that my scholarship was towards something called Science One. So 30 kids in the, in the country got invited to this program and I had no desire to be a doctor. When you're part of the program, it's just, it just like it, it, it was almost like a bad day in my family when I told my parents I didn't want to be a doctor. You know, like the worst thing to tell immigrant parents is uh, you don't want to be a doctor because that's kind of like the immigrant's dream is that their kid becomes a doctor. So one of my math profs was like, hey, Mary, you're really good at math. You'd be a great math teacher. And I never thought about being a teacher. So I did that for a bit. Then I started uh, back then we had something called provincial exams. So I got into marking provincial exams and I started teaching post-secondary calculus. So as I got into that, I did that for a couple of years and I figured, geez, I'm, I'm making more money than these profs just kind of dabbling in these stocks. And it was always kind of my interest in university. So to keep up my scholarship average, I took what was called rocks for jocks. I got to be careful here because my wife's yeah, a there geologist you go. <laughs> and the professor who was my favorite prof at the time ended up like many years later, leaving the university to come work for me full time. And Mark Buston, Dr. Mark Buston, still a great friend of mine. Uh, he said, Marin, you know, wh wh what are you doing here in these, you know, get, use your math and get into the, you know, the business world or something. And so I was kind of like conflicted at the time. So I left teaching, which, you know, I really loved it for the kids, but God talk about bureaucratic nonsense. And, and I'm just not one of those guys. You'll never see me in like uh, the suits, you know, I'm never part of that big bureaucracy. I guess I'm because of my roots where I come from, I'm, I'm always cheering for Rocky Balboa. I'm, I'm about the underdog story. And when I started doing this stuff full time, it was actually a few of the kids that, that I taught dad, uh, one of the guys, a head guy at Rogers. Uh, he was like, man, he goes, I can't believe you're a teacher. You need to get into my business when you decide to leave and teaching. This is like my first parent teacher gig. So it's like October, I think, or November of my first year teaching. The guy comes in, we talk about the kid and he's like, Hey, you're not going to be a teacher in two years. I want you to come work for me. And I'm like sitting there going, uh, okay. Like, so I started getting all these offers and, and I said, you know, I'm just going to do my own thing. And that's how I ended up meeting Doug Casey and Rick rule and all these kind of power players in the industry. And, you know, through all the courses, you, you don't learn anything about private placements and how the industry is really done. And by 2005 and six, I said, you know, this industry is really half-assed backwards where it's set up where the bankers, the fund managers, the brokers, the inside management guys, they get all of the people in their inside round and the poor retail crowd, the teachers of which I started out as, you know, the profs, the doctors, the lawyers, the businessmen, they buy it all in the open market. And I said, this is kind of fucking stupid. I'm going to do this my way. So that's where the whole private placement started with the newsletter industry back in 05. So I was the first guy ever to do that. So subsequently from that, you meet guys like uh, Jim O'Rourke, who's, you know, Order of British Columbia, Hall of Famer in mining. And, you know, we just clicked and he's, you know, it's kind of weird that someone 40 years older than me is one of my closest friends. So together we started up something called uh, Co Copper Mountain with Rod Shire. And uh, I became the largest investor in that at early age. And I was the youngest director on the TSX at the time. So I started doing things my way. And, and I realized that the guys that I clicked with were, guys that I never needed contracts with, a uh, handshake meant something. So that, that's kind of how I, you know, I worked with Olivier Gray and Doug Casey, and we, we created the number one fund in the industry off of a handshake. And it's been 15 year relationships with, with that in the business. So that's kind of my style. And today we're probably, I don't know, top three financiers in the whole sector. And 
I do it differently. I don't take any fees from the companies, but I'm the largest investor in most of these deals. So I want the money going into the company and I bring my subscribers in at the same price and the same time. Uh, so for all the management guys, I guess this podcast is about companies, you know, you have to appeal to the investor. I, I don't like management teams that come into my office and ask for money and they go, hey, Marin, we don't like your warrant. And I, I just flip it around going, great. I don't like your options. So I'll tell you what, you don't do options. I won't do warrants. Hmm. You know, or they go, well, we'll give you a half warrant for two years. I go, great. Make your options half warrants for two years. And then you see how quickly they skirm. Yeah, yeah. I have yeah. a very simple rule. My investors and myself, we get in at the same price as the management, skin in the game, and no bullshit salaries. Like this industry has been so abused because during a bull market, that's what happens. You know, it's kind of like Hollywood. The worst scoundrels get attracted to the industry because the money can be so big. But most of the time, you know, there's something called Pareto's law. Because of my math background, I brought a lot of these math formulas into the retail world. And I brought up the whole 464 rule or Pareto's rule going like, if you actually look at the people, there's a reason why Jim O'Rourke's built six copper mines in his career. Now, that doesn't sound like a lot, six, but that's massive, yeah. you know, and why guys like Ross Speedy are successful and, you know, the broken slot machine because winners win and then there's a pattern to success. And, and my thesis was very simple from an early day. I don't got time for losers, nor does my portfolio. I don't have enough money when I started out to invest in 500 stocks. And that's a big mistake the retail crowd do. So I'm probably one of the least like people in the industry because I'm very black and white. There's no bullshit. There's no gray line. And I just won't invest in most of these guys because they come in here and, you know, they have five cent stock. They want you to talk about it when it's 40 cents or 50 cents or, you know, a lot of the industries based on paid promotion. We don't do that. You know, our, our game is very simple. And, you know, it was uh, probably the greatest compliment I got in the industry when there's a famous investor, a very successful guy named Tom Kaplan said, Mara, I can't believe the size of your balls to call out the industry where it is. And you're in the heart of the industry in Vancouver. And my response is, that's my way of not being invited to a lot of dinner parties because I actually don't like a lot of the people in the industry and I don't want to be around them. So it's a self-defense mechanism. So, you know, you focus on four or 5% of the industry and you find out that that's where about two thirds of the success has been. Mm -hmm. now, there's thousands of companies out there and so many of them are so illiquid and you know you get some guru or paid guru that talks about it you know 10 cents to 33 cents but what they don't talk about is how did you get out the liquidity is a huge factor so when you have you know today where the industry's evolved where more money than ever before has been managed by passive funds like ETFs and you know those types of index funds they're not going to invest in these little junior dinky stocks that they did in 15 years ago. That's actually, so, there's a good point I want to drive in there. So please carry on, but we'll come yeah, back. Yeah. So my styles look at things run by excellent management teams, skin in the game, you know, and the risk tolerance. Like there's something that I've seen horrible in the industry in the last five, 10 years is analysts across the board aren't differentiating between a project in, in the middle. And look, I've been there and done it. I've learned the hard way. Like I've been to over a hundred countries. I've literally lived the scars, both in a portfolio, mentally and physically, what I went through to get to where I am, both, you know, experience wise, health wise, the challenges I've had. And it, it really comes down to how can you seriously analyze a gold mine in Nevada 
or somewhere in like Quebec, the same discount rate as somewhere in Central Africa, mm-hmm. you know, and people hate when I say that because, you know, 75% of the money that's raised is for those outside projects. Yeah. And well, the economics aren't the same. No. And, and, and I've broken it down showing that, look, like, you know, you get into the nitty gritty details of that cash flow and free cash flow. And there are projects that I'm invested in that are in non what I call positive swap line nations, but so much risk is not priced into the market. So there, you know, my style is just straight up. Uh, a lot of people will, will hear things that they don't agree with. And there's something about gold investors. Like here, I'll give you a great example. I get so much hate about the U S dollar is going to be a great place to be. And for, and for the last couple of years, I've said that, and it has worked out incredibly well. Like, People talk about how well the market's doing. You know, we're the asset class that's done the best this year, 30-year U.S. treasuries. Bet you didn't know that, hmm. right? And, and it's outperformed gold. So you look at how screwed up the world is, and yes, the U.S. has a lot of its own issues, but when you travel to over 100 countries, you realize that it's still a lot better than any of the other places. So wow. that's my style. It's very simple. Uh, I don't invest in many things, but when I do, I take a big piece. Marin, there's a, there's a lot there. Purpose of this question is to get somewhat inside your head of how did your teaching career, the calculus, and your mental models, if you will, influence your investing? And, and what kind of time frame do you work in? I guess it really hit when I started teaching calculus at the university, where you have to explain things in a fun way. And it really, you become a master and a lot of people wonder, why the hell do I publish? And I explain, you truly become, you keep your skills sharp if you have to talk about it. And taking complicated subject matter and making it fun, entertaining, you actually get to truly understand things a lot better. And you don't get lazy. By publishing, you know, I have published consistently without missing a single month for 16 or 17 years now. And that includes going under a quadruple bypass. Okay. You've already Uh, been through a quadruple bypass? Yeah. Jesus, you've done a lot in your life, pal. And and I have never (laughs) done a drug in my life other than my heart meds. Okay. So there's, there's all sorts of shit out there about my lifestyle. Is that bullshit? I drink like any other guy and is, you know, I was 33 when it happened, but never done a drug in my life. And I just was one of those genetic freaks. And, you know, the best lesson I could tell anyone is the lesson that saved my life. I was at one of my best friend's weddings. We were at the wedding party. I gave a speech. He gave a speech. And I just was feeling awful. And uh, it was a hot day. We were in suits all day in Mexico. And I thought, shit, you know, maybe I have Montezuma's revenge coming. And uh, I was getting massive chest pains. But, you know, you're 33. You're thinking nothing of it, right? You're thinking more, you know, maybe it's just the heat, dehydration, whatever. From there... Yeah, exactly. And from there, my wife and I flew to New York. I had to give a a keynote at the conference, which I got booed at. Ironically, it was May 2012. And I stood up there and said, hey, I'm taking all my money off the table. And 90% of these companies are going to go down at least 50, 60, 70%. I'll come back in a year or two and and start. People were in my face. Like I'm, I'm not kidding you how much negativity I had. And I said, geez, like this is, I'm totally right. Because all these gold investors are telling me, and I've been to these projects about how they're going to go up so much higher. And I went, whatever. So that was my stance. And then that night I was just feeling awful. 
and my wife and I and a couple of former NHL players went to the uh, New York Rangers playing the New Jersey Devils. And I remember sitting with uh, Jeff Cornwell was behind me, a good buddy of mine. And uh, he was freezing. We were in the old garden and he wanted my jacket and I was just sweating. And everyone's like, are you okay? I'm like, no, I don't feel well. So I told my wife, I go, we're booking our flight. We're, we're getting out of here first thing tomorrow morning. So we caught the first flight back from there. My chest pain's getting worse. Went to the emergency room and they said, Hey, you know, we, we think it's anxiety. You're having a panic attack. And I go, look, if this was December 08, where I got caught in the market where I lost like 90% of my net worth and everything was illiquid, I would have believed you having a panic attack. But I told the doctor, I go, look, this is not a panic attack. I know what a panic attack is. I don't get panic attacks. And they were like, no, no, no. They, they were trying to convince my wife to take me home. And uh, the doctor actually said, look, said to my wife, make your man a bowl of uh, pasta and he'll feel good and take these pills. And I go, bowl of pasta? Why would I eat that? And he goes, well, you know, don't you Italians like pasta? And I go, I'm not even Italian. Like, can I <laughs> please talk to another doctor? And I go, and I was getting really antsy. I go, I need to talk to a cardiologist. I think I'm having a heart attack. And they laughed. They said, what are you talking about? So they finally bring in this doctor and, and, and the kid looked like he was 13. And I I said, who are you, Doogie Hauser, MD? And, and he goes, no, I'm an R2. And I guess because of the anxiety or the pressure I was under, I was in the emergency room for 40 hours before I, I got admitted in. And I go, are you a doctor? You look really young. He goes, oh, I'm an R2. And, and I didn't quite click in what R2 meant. And I'm like, what? They sent me a student? Mm. I go, what the hell's wrong with this place? I go, I need to see a cardiologist. So I started getting frustrated at the hospital. So they brought the cardiologist down after I waited hours and hours and hours. And he goes, okay, so you're not going to leave till we give you an angiogram. I go, nope, I have a right. I want my angiogram. And he said, look, kid, there's a 3% chance of dying under an angiogram. I will guarantee you, you're going to be going home that day. And I go, great. But uh, I don't think so. Something's wrong. He goes, I'll, he goes, I heard you're this gold guy. I go, I'll, I'll bet you a gold coin. So he does the angiogram uh, the next day. So I, this is now the third day in the hospital uh, in through emergency and he halfway through the surgery and, and I hate the band tragically hip. I know Canadians love it. I just think I can't stand <laughs> that music. They're blasting the uh, tragically hip through the, uh, where you get the angiogram at the hospital and the doctor's wearing, you know, those construction socks with sandals. And I'm like, Oh God, this is totally opposite my scene. And he goes, get Dr. Ling in now. He's got to get cut now. And I go, what? And he goes, I am so sorry. He goes, you need to go in and get a triple bypass. And I went, you were just telling me like two hours ago how it's all in my head and I got to go home. He's like, I'm so sorry. He goes, you need a triple bypass. So they rush me through. They say, look, we're going to take the veins out of your leg. And I said, okay. And I woke up and I'm looking at my leg. So now, you know, you're, you're out of the surgery and I'm going, holy crap, uh, my leg's great. Like these drugs, I've never done this before, but holy crap. Like, and then I'm looking, I'm, I'm, I'm super confused. And it felt like that episode of Simpsons where the doctors made a mistake because they walked me through and said, you're going to get your vein out of your leg. And um, the next day, like I'm really confused and there's huge bandage on my head, uh, my, uh, sorry, my left arm. And it's just throbbing. The surgeon comes in and says, hey, just so you know, the angiogram wasn't exactly right. And we decided to just wing it. So we didn't take the vein out of your legs and you got a quadruple bypass. And I went, okay, that explains where I'm at. So the moral of the story is when you believe something is wrong or you believe in something and everyone tells you differently, 
I have used that experience many times in business and, and I would not be alive if I took the doctor's opinion. So if you go to the doctors and I tell this to all my friends, all my family, all my colleagues, I've published this. If you get an answer from someone that just doesn't feel right and you believe you're still got some pains or whatever, go see someone else or request to see a second opinion or whatever. Uh, that's the number one thing I've realized people don't do is they're just so compliant or non-questioning. And, mm. you know, if anyone has asked the, what's the number one piece of advice, there it is. Wow. Interesting. Interesting. It's, um, it actually leads me to the, to the next question. And this is to, to drive in for, for the audience of management teams and the CEOs who will be listening to this. And that is, what should CEOs and management teams know about building relationships with you? Um, Tell the truth. Number one, don't bullshit me or any of the big players in the business. The truth, you know, when you take limits and calculus, you know, it's it, through time, the truth will always come out. Business is tough. All the relationships I've had, like Ross Beatty or Lucas Lundin, the guys that Amir and Danny, uh, uh, all the guys that I do a lot of business with, it's literally, it's, it's our bond. It's our relationship. They've never once bullshitted me and I've never once bullshitted them. Okay. And when there's problems, you work through it and you just get through it. But that's step one. Be super honest. Number two, do what you say you're going to do. And, and don't just paper yourself up. There's groups out there that have incredible talent. And, and I just shake my head when I see them. But they're deal whores. They've got seven or eight deals running around. And they got paper here and they're on 10 boards. Well, I'll tell you, I was on the board of Copper Mountain from 2006 till I retired in, what the hell was it, 2018, 2019. So it's that 13, 14 years. And it's a lot of work. And it was the only board I sat on. And guys who are on 10, 15 boards, how can you possibly stay on top of things properly? Hmm. So it's really simple. Do what you're going to say you're going to do. Don't double dip into the treasury. If you look at guys like Ross Beatty, uh, Lucas, they don't take salaries. And, and I'm not trying to comp- say the, the young guys out there, but you look at, you know, you mentioned Jay, a mutual friend of ours, and I'm partners with him. When he came in, his business was really fragmented. He, he, he was under the eight ball and we worked through it and do everything you say you're going to do and be honest. And it's a very simple rule. And Jay and I went through the trenches for five years. Now he, his business is thriving, but the reason I stuck with him was he did what he said he was going to do. It's, it's not that difficult. Uh, when it comes to building new relationships, is there something that, whether it be you or other institutional investors, is there something that you see that companies need to do to start to initiate that relationship with you? So many of the guys are still doing things the way they did it in 2003, where you know they would go to Canaccord or they go to Haywood or they would do whatever and they paper up a bunch of brokers, they pay for this promotion through this newsletter writer and blah, blah, blah. And they think that they're just going to get another newsletter writer. It's like a kind of like a artificial pyramid scheme. And, you know, your track record, your reputation in in five minutes, I can spend the time to see where have all your deals gone, right? And I just think so many people think that they can hide from the dead body. So I don't necessarily have a closed door to new relationships, but it needs to be verified by someone that I'm very close with and respect. And it takes time to build that bond. But your track record, your reputation, uh, generally speaking, 
if you're a complete failure for 20 years, are you going to be an overnight success on your next deal? Or if you're hopping from copper to gold to you know, uranium to marijuana to blockchain, back to cannabis, back to gold, yeah, that's not really my cup of tea, right? Yeah. So I like the focus factor, you know, like a, my closest friend, Amir Adani, the guy's been in uranium since 2005. Like talk about the crash of 07, the crash of 08, Fukushima in 2011. You know, the guy has lived the scars and he's built uranium mine and he's built these royalty companies. Like the guy is a winner, but he's so focused in uranium that am I going to now when uranium does take off, whether it's this year, next year, whatever, I don't care. You know, if you're going to speculate properly, you're going to be early because you want to get in when things aren't popular and you might be three years early. Hmm. But you want to be invested with guys who who know the game, they know the landscape, and and there's that's my strategy. Um, you look at someone like a Ross Beatty. You know he's a brilliant geologist, but people forget that he's also a brilliant lawyer, and his deals are so successful because he's got a business mind and a geological mind. And you know the silver uh, Pan American silver will be the world's largest pure silver producer because that's his goal. And he's never sold a single share in the company. Like how many management teams can you say that about that actually took an idea and in what, 25 years built the second largest silver producer. The first is a government owned entity Fresnillo, which is the Mexican big producer, but he really took the largest North American producer from idea to world-class producer pays a dividend has essentially no debt and never sold a single share that's a winner it, i think that's yeah the point there it's somebody who isn't just chasing the next shiny object or the next shiny sector it's yep. uh like you say with your your friend amir and in, in uranium i mean it's it's his his calling if you will it's his sector his industry I'm going to jump around here a bit. I've got a few different questions that I've thought through. Something I'm curious about is March 2020 comes. We have this black swan, perhaps a double black swan, however you want to call it. What parts of your market outlook were affirmed and what what have you learned from that? And perhaps where have you needed to adjust? Did anything take you by surprise? And yeah, what came well, the, of that? The timing of when it happens, look, in February of 2020. So the first, I publish on the first Wednesday of every month. So, you know, you're a subscriber, you go into the archives and you pull up in 2020. I said, I don't like where these markets are at. Take a free ride on these big positions. And when the market does correct, I don't know when it will, but it will. You want to be cashed up because you can't take an opportunity. You can't seize the opportunity if you're fully invested. And I go, I'm higher percentage cash than ever before. On March 15th, uh, the Sunday when Fed called the emergency meeting that was supposed to be on the Tuesday to the Sunday. When I got that alert, because I subscribed to that Fed uh, service, and I went, holy crap, that's big. I was with my wife and my kids, and I said, honey, I got to go into the office. And it was a Sunday. And I phoned my team. I said, boys, we're all getting to work. Let's go. And they were like, oh, man, it's a Sunday. But they were there. My team's always super supportive in my idea. And we put together that alert. And I said, here are the stocks that we've been following. And here are the price targets that I want to buy. And for the first week and a half, we didn't get filled. So that, you know, what was that? The March 17th to the end, I had five stocks and two of the five went at our position. I took some big positions in big companies that pay dividends. 
and we missed two by less than 10 cents. And then the fifth one, I, I was off by like $3. But these are big companies. And within a month, if you go to the April one, I said, okay, it's time to take a Katusa free ride. And I rarely do this this fast, but they've moved so much. And then we took that and I go, now you're going to collect a dividend for free with no risk. That was our strategy. And you want to be positioned uh, for, you know, there's difference between speculation and investment. So the next step, what we kind of said is hold our core gold positions. And that, that, that's been probably my best call because I was very early. Look, the first guy to publish on Equinox was me. The first guy to publish on Liberty was us. Our team likes to be first to an idea. We do the site visits and we were the first to all of those sites and we take big positions and our subscribers are in. So when you're sitting at a three, 400% gain and you tell your subscribers, look, do what you need to do if you want to take a free ride, but here's why I'm not selling because here's the intrinsic value and then it goes up another 100%. The key is to know what you bought and what the value is because if you've got something incredible, you don't want to sell it too early either. Now you can reduce your risk, but don't close your position out. You got to know how to hold these. And I've learned through the hard way. Like, you know, there's been incredible deals that because I wasn't in the financial position that I am now that I had to sell too early, knowing that it had great upside and it happened. You don't find those too often. When you find them, hold on for dear life because the ride will test your testicular fortitude but if you know what you're doing and you know what you have, that's where you make your big scores. With that, it partially, I mean, for you as an investor, you need to be speaking to the companies. You need to understand the assets and the management that's behind them, that's developing them. What tools or tactics from an investor relations standpoint are most helpful for you? Look, I, I you know, I, I respect all of the different aspects in the business, but, you know, because I don't, talk to the IR people most of the time. I talk to the CEOs mostly directly. There are some great IR teams out there. Um, but again, from my stance, when I talk to any of these companies, I just talk to the CEO and I know the guys and because of the position of my company, that's the relationship we have. Is so, there something that those CEOs are doing that, uh, that that's outstanding or that helps you stay in, helps you make decisions? I mean, yeah, what would be outstanding about some of those CEOs versus others you've seen? I think through the past, I think the number one thing is don't just call me when things are good. Call me when things are bad. And that's what you see with the winners in the industry. Look, you don't need to waste your time with 90% of the people in the industry. A, they don't know what the hell they're doing. B, their cost base is way different than your own. C, they've never made people money. They're more just you know, vampires that extract value from the business. They don't really add value. And when I say I'm not a light guy in the business, I honestly don't give a shit because <laughs> this isn't a popularity contest. My thousands of subscribers care that I work for them and no one else. And I do it because, you know, we, we're called the alligator pack because our style is so unique and different. And we've become the largest financiers in the game by doing so. But most people don't like that because they can't stand being exposed for what they are. And you build a reputation that most of the stuff, they're, they're not even going to bother. You know, uh, I'll give you great examples. When bankers, because, you know, I run a large fund, investment bankers will bring uh, stuff into the, the office and we have a whole team here and they'll meet with them. And uh, the head guy phones me up from one of the brokerage firms says, hey, man, like our investment banker is getting really frustrated with you. You said no to nine deals. 
And I said, well, tell them to bring good deals to me. <laughs> and every one of those nine, and now I track every meeting we have, we track the, who brought it, management team, progress, did they do what they say they're going to do? We, we've got a pretty complicated process here. So I sent them a note in the 10th meeting and I go, here you go. I just want to let you know your two-year track record. If I followed what you'd be doing, you'd be, I'd be down 93%. So who follow the money? Who do they work for? Well, who pays them? The companies. So if you bring it down to a street level and don't overcomplicate yourself in the geology, because if you're a doctor, even if you're a geologist working for another company, you don't have the time to go through the data, but you have the street ability to figure out, okay, I see Ross Beatty. I like Ross Beatty. You know, when I hold the conferences with Jay, you get to meet Ross Beatty. I bring these guys out to the conferences because they're my buddies. You get to ask them questions. My subscribers, we, we have events where you, you, you have dinner with Ross Beatty. You get to see the pupils of his eye. Now, that doesn't guarantee success. And what is your time frame? Now, we've been able to get in at a cost base slightly cheaper than Ross Beatty's cost base. Now, that's the largest investor in the deal. That doesn't guarantee success, but it increases the odds. Now, the second question is, what's your time frame? Now, if you bought it for just six months, it would have been maybe a wash. But if you've held for now, you know, 18 or 24 months, you're sitting at almost triple on a relatively low risk major producer. Within two years, they'll be producing a million ounces. That'll be a top 15 producer in the world. So you have to, when you start speculating or investing, you got to ask yourself, okay, what's my asset allocation? How much am I putting in here? Never buy your whole position at once. Second thing is, what's my time frame? How long am I going to let this to develop? And if you think about it in a streetwise support going, okay, if this was a house, do I expect to build it, uh, sell it once it, the, the old house is torn down, but get full value for it? No. You know, and so many investors have a 30-day time frame. Well, then Investing in the junior world is not in the resource sector is not the right place for you. And you should be in high frequency trading. So you have to know your time frame, your asset allocation, and start with the people. Like if they're good people, it doesn't guarantee anything. This is a super risky game. Mm -hmm. But they're not going to leave dead bodies. They're they're not going to walk away from the deal. It, you know, it, that uh, reminded me of something you you said in a Real Vision interview that you did where you discuss the impacts of of passive money being these algorithmic funds and so on, buying positions in a lot of these larger players, pushing up values or valuations, excuse me, above what you, you see as net asset values, bringing it back to the juniors and the result of, of effectively they're getting ignored. And so is it that these juniors need a lot more time to, or not, not that they need more time, but there's the opportunity now, given what's happening in the market is, is in these juniors, but it's going to take a longer time frame for them to ultimately get acquired. Is that kind of what you're playing and what you're seeing? Very specifically, most of the juniors are completely overvalued because of the promotional aspect. And then what do they really have? Most PEAs or PFSs, you know, preliminary economic assessments, or as I call pretend financial statements or pretend bankable feasibility studies. I'll share one super easy trick that I do. When you look at these like reports, every person that signs off on the geology or metallurgy or the engineering, they have to sign off with their name so you get to see it. 
So what, you, what we did was we created a 20-year database of every single report and who signed off on what and what their track record is. See, these companies use these third-party engineering firms that have no skin in the game. Again, who pays these engineering firms? The company. So the, the company will lean on them to get the best possible economics on paper and the engineering firm may or may not bend, whatever. They'll come up with some numbers, remember, using the company's data. Number two, they sign off and there's a pattern to success and patterns to failure within these different engineering who sign off. And what you find out is a lot of these engineers and geologists who work for these engineering firms, they bounce around to different firms, but you can track all of their published material. So you start looking at true economic costs and, and, and don't buy into the bullshit of what they say their technical reports say, right? So you got to kind of submerse yourself into that information. That, that's a starting can I, point. Can I ask a question there? Uh, which something I'm curious about is how do you manage all of these data points? I mean, effectively infinite data points for you to build your investment strategies. Well, I have nine guys working for me full time. So it's not just me. I have a whole team of guys who make it their life and skin in the game. Uh, when I started, it was just me. And then some of the students, we used to be called an OMC and uh, they all went and got their CFAs. I was kind of like their big brother. This is a relationship where when most of my buddies would be going out on Friday nights with their girlfriends, I would be researching and putting together these databases. And uh, these kids that I taught calculus to became part of this investment club and they all became millionaires before the age of 30. And it was through the style we would go about and they had a vision and uh, three of them ended up working for me for full time straight out of university. So I'm glad that two of the three went on to more uh, what I would call structured firms because my firm's a bit different. I don't care what you wear to work. My office isn't fancy. This is all my own money. You know, people joke about the style of my office or what I drink or how I, you know, I don't do big dinners or big lunches with companies that just gives me a more reason not to invest with these guys. Like Ross Beatty doesn't have time to do a big lunch. Ross Beatty and I talk all the time, but he goes to Tim Hortons and he'll have a coffee and I'll buy him a coffee one week. He buys me like the guy eats a Tim Hortons soup. He's a, one of the wealthiest people in Canada because mm. he's busy. But I always walk whenever I got to go do a meeting or whatever. I always walk by the cactus club there at Bentel five and I look around and you always see the rounders. I call them the rounders. rounders. Yeah, of course, the rounders. The, the guys who just <laughs> hang around. And you know what? Not one of them have ever returned a big score for investors. But you know what? I can guarantee you those companies are paying for that lunch. Mm. And they take their IR people out for lunch and they're talking about returns and blah, blah, whatever. It's not that complicated of a game. Now, it's stressful at certain times. You know, so what should people do? Uh, it, you know, I don't need to sit through a two-hour lunch. Uh, a Zoom call is really good. And trust me, if you've got something, the smart money will find you. Uh, number two, I love this whole Zoom thing because I don't have to be, you know, the, the social aspect of a meeting. How's your weekend? Blah, blah, blah. It's just like, all right, boom, boom, get it done. 15 minutes, don't care. And after, you know, there's that blink theory, there's a fatal flaw. I don't need to figure out anything else right? If you're at a certain elevation in certain countries, I don't care how good your project is. It ain't going to be built next, mm. right? Yeah. 
if you have an oil project and there's no pipeline and, and I know you don't have a, a access to the rail, I know what trucking costs are, uneconomic, next, right? And, and some junior's not going to build a pipeline off of their little, you know, quarter sections of land. Like there's certain quick rules of thumb, you know, oh, your, your refractory gold, okay, where you're at, what's your discount, doesn't work. Right. You know, it's, so. it's what, what you're speaking here, what I'm hearing is there's a sophistication in which when somebody's coming to you and if they're able to lay that out for you and check those boxes so you don't have to just look at them going, no, that's not economic. They've actually been able to explain it to you and that will further the conversation coming in with some sophistication versus just some puffery, if you will. Correct. And, and uh, you know, I'll give you a great example of one that we did. Uh, Nolan Watson and I are good friends and he runs Sandstorm. And I came across, so my wife is a geologist, one of the geos she used to work with uh, was a guy named Eric Roth. And he had Adriana, not Adriana, sorry, they were called, shit, I can't even remember what the hell they were called. And they were listed on the AIM. And I was in London, we had meetings, and I said, geez, I really like this, but I've got some questions on the metallurgy. And it was the hot maiden deposit. And as Nolan and I were talking, he goes, geez, we really like that too. And his geos had a different interpretation. Now, I wasn't quite convinced yet. And I have an incredible geo who's also in the Hall of Fame that does a lot of my geology work. And Roman was, well, you know, he did his analysis. And then the management team came in. So when they listed on in the Canadian market, uh, Nolan and I financed them and we took a big chunk of it and Nolan and his team were right. And you work through it and the management team walked us through the process. So it's not like I have all the answers, but we do our due diligence. Here's what I think. And if someone pushes back with actual facts and data, I'm totally open to relooking at it in a different way. Mm -hmm. Now, Sandstorm ended up buying out that company for the hot maiden. I sold out. We made something like seven, eight times our money. It, it's a great asset. You know, Turkey, I'm not the biggest fan of that risk tolerance area, but the deposit is truly world-class. But that's an example of the right people bringing the right data going, Marin, we think you're wrong on your metallurgy. And, you know, I, I was still invested because I believe that this thing had potential, but that was my fear. And, and there's many examples of that. You know, it's not, I make lots of mistakes and, and guys will show me their opinion. And, you know, sometimes I disagree respectfully and I won't put my money in. Other times I change my mind. Marin, I, I want to be respectful of your time here. For what final advice would you have for management teams navigating these times specifically? And then also is I wanted to carry that over to retail investors looking to protect and work there and grow their wealth. I've, I've never actually consulted or, you know, management teams, but so many of these management teams look to the retail investor as their exit and don't do that. Treat a retail guy like you're treating me or a big fund. And, and I see so much of that in the market where these guys think that, you know, these big funds are coming in. They don't care. They're just looking for a flip. Most of these funds, their mandate is to make money. And some of these management teams put themselves in a position that they really don't understand debt or what they're giving up rather than doing strategic investments where you don't pay these huge fees because it really comes down to essentially the amount a major spends per meter of drilling is essentially going to be the same as a junior. 
Like you can't really, it's not like a junior can drill a lot cheaper for than a major. It's expensive. Exploration is very expensive. So I think the management teams, what they, because the sector is generally speaking, older individuals, you know, there's an age issue in our industry. My big thesis, like on when we did Copper Mountain was we were the first to shoot Titan 24 in Canada. The whole thesis was bring modern technology to an old area that hasn't been really thought through mm. using, you know, improvements. And so much of the industry, so many of the players are still using old data, old techniques. And, you know, there's some great groups like what Ivan Bebek's doing with Orin that are really pushing the limits of technological advancements. Now, it doesn't mean it's going to be guaranteed to work, but you get way more bang for your buck using drones, for example, uh, using octopus drills, uh, I call, where you're not you're just doing auger drilling to get an idea of the first, you know, 20 meters or whatever. Like, for example, I remember in 2000, I can't remember, maybe 2010 or 2011, there was this huge Yukon rush and I'd go up there and, you know, I was involved early. So we had some big gains in there and I'd look and they, they would get these students to go do grab samples. And then the company would set up the camps, which you have to do. You got to take care of your crew. And then they, I knew, I know of management teams that spent $8 million to set up their camps in a landing strip before they even got to drilling. Hmm. And you just sit there and go, holy crap. And then when they did their grab samples, these kids didn't care. There wasn't proper regulation. Half of them were probably stoned and just making up their data. Your data is only as good as what's going in. So there's this whole process, right? So it really comes down to, but I can assure you the good management teams aren't going to spend $8 million before they, in that bull rush, but it was all about just get out there and do it. Doesn't matter the costs, you know, spending crazy amounts on helicopters. And that's what happens in a bull market. And you want to be selling into a bull market and riding your free shares. You don't want to start in a bull market. Well, thank you for that. And it's interesting, you know, your reference to retail there and how some management teams look at look at to them as a, as a, as an exit where it's just ass backwards that way. Right. And, and I guess my biggest thing is what makes me very unpopular in the industry and most dinners is the retail people like, and I take the blue collar mentality, right? The, the average person is getting screwed by the banks. They're getting screwed by their brokers. They're getting screwed by every aspect of the financial world and everyone's complacent about it. You know why? because they're not putting in the work to do it themselves. I know so many bankers and brokers and money managers and wealth advisors. They're not creating wealth for anyone. You know, there's these structured products that, you know, will pay you four or 5%. But what these advisors aren't sharing is they're getting paid two and a half, three 3% upfront from the banks for selling you this product. And in Canada, you get taxed after 80 grand. Uh, what is the rate? Like 53% or whatever it is. So you're taking all that risk for like two, three percent after tax, and that wealth advisor's taking two and a half, three up front for just putting you into the product. That doesn't seem like skin in the game and fair play to me. Hmm. But a lot of people call me the rogue of the industry. Well, because I'm questioning the uh, the status quo. And I would not get to where I was if you listen to these investment bankers, because again, who pays them? Yeah. And for the average retail person be very skeptic and, and spend a little bit of time going through it. Like it's never been easier. Like there was no YouTube when I started out 
with videos. Like you can kind of sit through a presentation and go, is this guy an idiot? Like, does he really know what's going on? And within 30 minutes, you can figure out the guy's career or you can go, holy crap, this guy is like a rock star. I need to learn more about him and then follow your intuition. Hmm. Well, I appreciate that. And you know, the word that comes to mind to, to summarize you is unapologetic. I can see why some, or perhaps many in the industry don't like you because, uh, you're cutting through a lot of the bullshit that is a part of it, unfortunately. But uh, I, I have to say, I appreciate it. It's refreshing. Uh, how can the audience find you and follow your work? Lucky, just go to our website. I've got tons of material for free. You know, I even put up a book up for free because my publisher wanted to charge people and re, re, repack it. I'm like, I'm not into that. I, look, I got a New York Times bestseller. And you don't make that much money from a New York Times bestseller. Yeah. I got to okay. say, just for the listeners, you got to read that book. It was, I enjoyed the hell out of it. Very well written. And that's so, uh, Colder War. Thank you. Uh, and just read the stuff that I'm putting out. You don't need to buy my service. And you know what, frankly, my service is probably not for most people because my style is so different. And if you're a serious investor, all right, then, then take a serious look at doing what I do. But my product's not for most people, but my free stuff is. And, it, and it's really going to just cut through a lot of what not to do in the industry. And, and you know, when you tie back to the original question is what did I learn about teaching? I guess I enjoy the aspect of teaching because it's such a fun thing to do. Sadly, our teachers in today's world aren't treated the way they should be. And, you know, I don't want to get into that rant, but, you know. Yeah, we could definitely go down and I agree with you, but. Yeah, and, and, you know, teachers and nurses are, I just feel the two careers that nobody truly stands up for, but yet are probably the two careers that, you know, think about your kids and how much time your teachers spend. But anyways, I just love teaching. And after you go through what I've been through, both health-wise and my career, you get to a certain point where you don't give a fuck anymore. And you just do what you want to do. And this is what I want to do. I find it fun and entertaining. And I keep myself sharp by publishing. And what I love about the social world, like I got subscribers who are not paid subscribers. They're just, you know, on my free list. And we talk, you know, through Twitter and, and, and email and videos. I've met incredible people that 10 years ago, even I would never meet. And um, I just think we're entering such an incredible phase of the sector that the world, even though it's so fragmented, has never been smaller. So use it to your advantage. Merritt, mm. thank you so much for making the time, man. This you has bet. been uh, really enlightening. I appreciate it. All right. Take care. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Insider's Guide to Finance. If you enjoyed what you heard, please share this with your friends and colleagues so they can benefit as well. You can also subscribe and leave a review on iTunes or the Play Store. Your support there is really appreciated. For future episodes, if there's a question, topic, or specific person you'd like me to interview, feel free to reach out. You can connect with me on LinkedIn or through my website at creativereturn.ca.